When Jenny and I were 25 years old, we had only been married three years, and we volunteered in two different places in church. We volunteered in the nursery, and we volunteered in middle school. The funny, in the nursery, uh, we would be serving on a Sunday morning, and parents would peer into the window and see us, 25-year-olds, married, no kids of our own, and they would take their baby, and they would keep walking down the hall. The irony of it is, Jenny, for a decade, had done the Sunday night nursery in her church for a decade. I mean, she knew everything there was to know about babies. I mean, it was just... And then, in middle school land, parents would come to us to unload and for advice. What do I do? My kid, you know... We were reading a book, How to Do Middle School Ministry, and parents would come to me, and I'd be like... I'm only on page 49. Could you come back in a couple of weeks? I'm not there yet, okay? Four years later, we had our first child. We had John Mark, okay? First-time parents. Jenny, again, she was ready. She had trained. She had prepped. She had babysat her whole life. I was the newbie, and I was a nervous Nelly when it came to John Mark when he came home from the hospital. I remember him being in the bassinet next to the bed and just lying there awake, listening. Is he breathing? And then babies make these weird sounds, you know, (laughs) what's that? Is he okay? Are babies supposed to do that? And I remember the first time Jenny asked me to make the bottle and I stuck it in the microwave. No! And I was like, what? You just, you know, do the water soft, you know, slowly on the stovetop. And then you did the thing where you had to Uh, squirt it onto your arm. What is that all about? I could never tell. Is it hot enough? Is it not hot enough? Should I be screaming? Does it, is it okay if it turns my skin red? I just, I was completely nervous about having a kid. And to complicate things, John Mark was a sick baby. He was a sickly baby and toddler. The first time we went to Indiana to take him to see my parents when they lived in Indiana, uh, we ended up in the hospital. And I remember being in the hospital this waiting room at two o'clock in the morning. I'm a first time dad and the doctor comes in and this is what he says. We think your baby may have a form of meningitis that if it's not treated, it it would be deadly. We're not sure. Um, We're waiting to see, but we may need to do a procedure where we insert this needle into his spinal column, into his spinal column to extract some spinal fluid. It's the only way we can do this test there is a small chance that your son could become paralyzed from the neck down from this procedure. Again, we don't know. And I remember, you know, I'm like, I'm sorry, what? Can I have curtain number three? Could we do a scan? Is there, you know, and just the panic feeling. I remember another time uh, John Mark had the croup. The Dillons are learning the croup. You know, you're, you're walking that road. That's all big fun. Remember, John was in the back seat. I was in the front seat. Jenny was in the back seat with John. And we were driving hurriedly to the hospital from Nicholasville. And we made it to the boot store. And Jenny started screaming from the back seat, He's not breathing. He stopped breathing, Max. He's not breathing. I'm like, oh, this is before we had cell phones. So I pull over into the boot store. I run in. And I'm like, I got to call the hospital. I got to call an ambulance. So I, I call the doctor. And I'm like, what do I do? What do I do? And he's keep coming, keep coming, get back in your car and drive, come up, we're waiting for you. And so sure enough, he was breathing. We were, I was just, we were both panicked. It didn't seem like he was, you know, because croup can 
do that. If you've never heard the croup cough, parents who've done croup, you know. It's that wet, barky seal sound, and you know it as soon as you hear it. You're like, oh, that's the croup, man. You got the croup. But I remember that feeling of just utter panic. Parents, you know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? You've had those moments. If you're not a parent, I want to ask you to hang on with me today because I'm going to be talking to parents. But as I'm wading through this message, if you don't have kids of your own, I want you to be hearing this through the lens of your parents because what I'm going to talk about today will actually help you understand them a little bit more because I'm going to let you peer into their hearts and minds in a way that they probably never talked to you about. And, And it will help you understand why they did not let you do football. It will help you understand why they insisted that you were home at 10 o'clock or why they grilled you with question after question after question about your boyfriend or your girlfriend and you're just, leave me alone. You're going to understand a little bit more why they acted the way they did, okay? Parenting, parenting brings with it a semi-truck full of fear. Am I going to fail this child? Am, am I going to mess them up? I, love my, I, I have a good friend, Chris, And before any of us had kids, Chris was a housemate in college. Chris said this, dude, it's not a matter of uh, if you're going to mess your kids up. The question is when and how much. I'm not saving for college. I'm saving for counseling. He would say that. And he did. He set aside money. He actually did for counseling for his kids because I'm just going to mess them up. Um, I want fear that I won't have all the answers. Fear that I won't be able to give them a good enough education so that they can do better than me. Fear that um, uh, they won't turn out okay. There's a lot of fear that comes with parenting. It's enough to keep you up at night, isn't it? Um, and that's what I want to talk about today is fear. Some of you in this gym as parents have faced tremendous fear. You've done the whole custody battle thing where the kids are pulled like taffy and it's one way or the next and you, you're wondering, are they going to survive this? Some of you have done the thing where your 16-year-old cheerleader collapses, faints. Oh, it's no big deal. You drive to the hospital and then the doctor comes out and does the thing. Well, you know, we didn't know this, but your, your daughter has this heart condition that had undiagnosed for 16 years. And you're like, What? Um, Some of you have grown kids, and they've left home, and they're into trouble, they're into drugs, they're into the wrong crowd, and you worry, and you worry, and you worry. Um, Fear, when you're a parent, translates into action. And for those of you that are younger and you don't have kids, this is why mom and dad are just always on it all the time, because parents can't just sit around when, when Johnny or Susie are in trouble. We have to do something. It's why as a pastor, I've always marveled at the ability of the mom to just not leave the bedside of a sick kid in the hospital. No mom. Even if the doctors come in, even if you bring out the pastor and the pastor speaking on behalf of God says, you need to go home and take a rest, Karen. I'm not leaving. (laughs) It's almost, you know, psychotic. I'm not going to leave the bedside of my child. Okay, it's why parents will visit juvie every week. I mean, fear translates into action. None of us can sit still when our kid is suffering. Jairus couldn't. Jairus, if you'll remember, was the synagogue leader whose story is told in Luke chapter 8. Jairus' 12-year-old daughter was dying, and he couldn't just sit still and do nothing. And that's what I want to wade into today with you. Uh, from the Gospel of Luke. And so if you brought a Bible, open it to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. Everyone knew Jairus. Uh, He was, as the synagogue leader, the guy who planned the worship services every weekend, everybody knew him. But when he runs into Jesus 
it's very quick. And this is, what he, this is the first part of the encounter, verses uh, uh, 40 and following. Uh, Luke 8, verse 40. On the other side of the lake, the crowds welcomed Jesus because they had been waiting for him. Then a man named Jairus, a leader of the local synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come with him. His only daughter, who was about 12 years old, was dying. As Jesus went with him, he was surrounded by the crowds. There's no formal greeting, no pleasantries. Just immediately, Jesus is at the, uh, Jairus is at the feet of this healing rabbi, begging him, please come to my house. We're not told what the girl's illness is. We don't know. But the text lets us know that time is of the essence. Jesus needs to hurry if he's going to affect a cure and heal this young uh, girl. But along the way, someone else needs Jesus. And that's what happens next. Uh, Verse 43, a woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding, and she could find no cure. Coming up behind Jesus, she touched the fringe of his robe. Immediately, the bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. Everyone denied it, and Peter said, Master, this whole crowd is pressing up against you. But Jesus said, Someone deliberately touched me, for I felt healing power go out from me. Parents, let me ask you a question. How do you think Jairus is feeling at this moment? If you were Jairus and your 12-year-old daughter was literally dying at home, and this was your last shot, your last hope, and you had come, and somehow you had managed to motivate this rabbi to come to your house, and he's moving in that direction, and then he stops because he's wanting to know who touched his robe in a crowd where everybody's pressing up against him. I would imagine Jairus was starting to get very, very frustrated and feeling like maybe Jesus wasn't on his side after all. And of course, there's this interchange with this woman who's healed because she had touched him. And that's where we pick things up in verse 49. While Jesus was still speaking to her, a messenger arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. The messenger told him, your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. Can you imagine as a parent? I mean, in that moment, I, Jairus had to be disappointed, just utterly undone and angry. And this is what Jesus says to him. When Jesus heard what had happened, verse 50, he said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just have faith and she will be healed. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Let's continue on and see what happens. Verse 51, when they arrived at the house, Jesus wouldn't let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, James, and the little girl's father and mother. Jesus could have hurried in without interchanging with the mom at all, without involving her, but he chose to bring her and dad and bring them together. And I don't know what was going on. I don't know if it was the classic thing we just talked about where she's like, I'm not leaving the bedside. Or if there was a dispute. You know, illness can do this and can drive a wedge in a family where one person thinks one form of treatment should take place and another person thinks it should be, happen, ta- uh, should be done another way. And maybe it was the case where mom and dad weren't on the same page. And dad was like, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to this healing rabbi. And mom's like, look, we've brought in the physician. We prayed. We've done our part. Don't, no, that's not who we are. That's not what we do. You're a leader in the synagogue. But whatever it is, 
Jesus takes this mom and dad and he unites them in their struggle. And they're together in the bedroom. But look at verse 52. The house was filled with people weeping and wailing. But he said, stop the weeping. She isn't dead. She's only asleep. The crowd laughed at him because they all knew she had died. The people who had determined she's dead, there's nothing more that can happen. The story is done. This is the ending. He takes all of them and he kicks them out, literally. What Jesus is doing is he's banishing unbelief. You're not even going to be in the house. Get out. And then he pulls the, the three disciples and the parents in the room. And let's see what happens next. Then Jesus, verse 54, took her up by the hand and said in a loud voice, My child, get up. And at that moment, her life returned, and she immediately stood up. And Jesus told them to give her something to eat. No incantations, no magic, just pure, raw authority. He reaches out his hand, grabs hers, her spirit returns, and she's revived. I see in this passage that God has a heart for hurting parents. This is what Max Licato says. I love the way he puts it, and I'm going to quote him. What parental emotion has God not felt? Are you separated from your child? So is God. Is someone mistreating your child? They mocked and beat his. Is someone taking advantage of your child? The Son of God was set up by false testimony of a follower. Do you find yourself wanting to spare your child from all the hurt in the world? God did. Romans 8, 20, 32 puts it this way, Since God did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Some of you, I know, find this a little difficult to hear because at some point along the way, you found yourself maybe at a cemetery burying your child. And you would ask, if Jesus healed Jairus' daughter, why didn't he heal mine? And I would say to you, God understands that question. He buried a child too. He hates death more than you do and more than I do. That's why he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to do the work that Christ did. Some of you are standing where Jairus was in the crowd, and you haven't gotten home yet to a miracle, and you're wanting God to do something big in your kids. Your kid needs something big. And you're waiting, and you're wondering, like Jairus perhaps, maybe God has forgotten but God has not forgotten you any more than he forgot Jairus. God never dismisses a parent's prayer, never. I want to ask you a couple of questions. Uh, we always say at Generations, we're a church that asks questions, okay? So here are my questions this morning in light of this passage. Where, parents, are you taking your fears? You've got them. You have fears over your kids, so where are you taking them? Are you taking them to your spouse? That's the wrong place. Are you taking them out on your children? That's not a good place either. Here's another question. Have you given your kids back to God? Or put another way, have you given God back his child? I know that sounds weird, doesn't it? And you're like, wait a minute. No, that's not God. This is my kid. God gave him to me. Well, in the Psalms, God says, in your mother's womb, I formed you. I knew you. I made you. You're mine. And so before you had those kids and before I had John, Mark, Jillian, and Madeline, they were his. It's why Christian parents for centuries have dedicated their children. It's a, 
It's a practical act on their behalf to say to themselves and to God, here, I give this child back to you because they belong to you first. And I promise I'll do the best I can. And that's what, they, what, what parents do when they're dedicating children. Um, we, when we don't take our parenting fears to Jesus, we do end up taking them out on our kids. And I want to talk about a continuum for a moment. There are a couple of extremes. And one extreme in terms of fear, and when you're a fearful parent, and when you have fears about your kid, what you can do is you can become a prison guard. And this is how it works. They're the parent that on the playground stands, stands watch. It's almost like they're packing a gun as they're watching their kid, making sure their kid is entirely safe. Oh, the slide! Boom! Right into action quickly. They're the ones always on duty at a church event. No matter what it's going on, they're there. They're the prison guard. They're there to make sure that kid is safe at all times, that nothing can harm them. They're the ones that are always questioning and want to get a background check when the kid comes and says, I made a new friend. Who are they? Who are their parents? Where do they live? Do we know anything about them? Let me Google search what their dad does. Okay? And, and the, the thing that happens, if you're a parent and you've done this, or if you're a kid, maybe you experience this, when fear is taken this way, what happens is it stifles the kid. It becomes a suffocating thing. And over time, the kid is like, you don't trust me. And there's that pushback, as Ron Paul would say, blowback from parenting from the paradigm of a prison guard. Well, on the other end of the extreme, there's the people who are prison guarded as kids themselves. And so they've resolved, I'm not going to do that to my kids. I'm not going to suffocate them. I'm not going to stand over them some like prison guard. Just go, be free, do whatever you want. And so there's no limits whatsoever. There's no boundaries. Just go. It's okay. You get all hugs, but no discipline. And that doesn't work either. Neither one of those extremes works. So what do you do? What do you do? I want to suggest that you pray. I know you're like, oh, that's the Christian answer. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's, let's wait into this for a minute. In the four Gospels, in the four Gospels found in the New Testament, not once does Jesus engage in a parenting seminar. You don't find one. There's never once does he do a little diatribe on the benefits of breastfeeding. There's no Jesus seminar on the benefits of breastfeeding. Jesus never wades into the should you spank or do time out. No, it's not there. He never goes into a long excursion on when is the right age that a kid should be able to date. I mean, it's a pressing issue, I know. Are they ready? Is it time? Should it be this age or should I wait? You know, he doesn't wade into any of that stuff. But every time a parent prays, Jesus responds. Every time. Are you stumped by geometry? Pray. Pray with your son or daughter about it. Uh, are you intimidated by the new boy or the new girl that's in their life? Pray. <laughs> Pray with them. Pray for them. We cannot protect our kids from everything. We can't. But we can lead them to Jesus Christ and we can place them in his good hands. And that's where we take our fear. We take it to Jesus and we take our kids and we put them in Jesus' good hands.